The Grancidillo School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Here's Jim. I'm not sure how you follow that. Yeah, that's <laughs> kind of tough. Yeah. Well, so there you go. Um, and uh, it was about uh, two and a half hours that looks pretty much like that. Um, but there's a real powerful story in the heart of it. It's a, uh, it's a story about, um, you know, and there are, there are allegorical elements to it. There are some subtle and, you know, and, and maybe not so subtle um, social, political connections and, and references that, um, that give greater depth to the story and to the, and to the journey of the movie. And, um, you know, it's truly uh, an extraordinary work in, in, um, as, a, as a narrative, an emotional, very powerful film. And, uh, you know, you're seeing it here in 3D, which is really the, the ideal way to see it, but hardly the only way. Jim said, you know, you, I can't give it, he said it or I said it, I don't know who gets the copyright, but we said, you know, it's, you could watch this movie in 1D and it would still be, you know, spectacular. Um, most of the material, of course, that people will see of the film and have seen of the film in the marketing campaign is 2D because they're watching it on their television sets. So I could assure you that just watching this in 2D, the equivalent of close one of your eyes and, and, and it's the images and the story and the power of, uh, of the film are all very much apparent. So. Um, Something we're very, very proud of and uh, expect will be, it's always around, very, very successful. You know, one of the things I think about watching this is, I mean, the technology is amazing and the 3D and it's really kind of a breakthrough uh, way of seeing a movie, but it also has a great story, which really is what separates a mm -hmm. great movie from just a good movie or an interesting movie to watch. How do you know when it's a great story to put all that cool technology around? How do you, well, is it it's, sort it's of science or art or how, how do you pick the great stories? Well, it's ultimately, you start with great filmmakers and great writers and, and, and great scripts. And, and um, clearly, you know, the story is always a, the, the foundation of any film. And, and when you have special effects like this, and especially when you have technology of this caliber, it's critical that the technology is in the service of the story rather than replacing it. And there are examples of, of that, and some of those films can be very, you know, entertaining. Check your you know, brain at the door and come in and watch real spectacle, and it, and it, it's, you know, it has its place and it's fun. But um, the ideal and the, and the, and the paradigm is, is when you have the foundation of a great story great filmmaker who knows how to tell that story visually as well as that and um, and then you add the dimension and I mean that both in terms of the 3d dimension but but the added um, contribution of um, of amazing visual effects that that uh, that are able to convey the story um, even more strikingly you know you go back to Titanic which was a fantastic uh, film, obviously, and a, and a wonderful story, um, and uh, and you you know you remember that people 
think about that and, and, and the story of that very powerful romance which resonated all over the world and every country, every language. Titanic was by far, and still is in most countries of the world, the number one film. Um, what people remember of Titanic is the relationship uh, of those two characters and, their, and their, the, the power of that emotion and that power of that romance. But they also remember, you know, watching Titanic had been made three times before, actually. And, um, you know, people remember that, that ship sitting in the middle of the Atlantic, vertical, and, and uh, the spectacle of that was certainly a contributing factor, but hardly the, the power of the movie. Well, Fox has done so many blockbuster movies like this, and that doesn't happen uh, easily. How do you, and you and Tom have done this in amazing ways over the last decade, how do you put together an organization that can continually produce successful movies like this? What is it from an organizational perspective that makes this happen? Well, you know, a lot of that, I, I, I do really attribute it to um, the culture of News Corporation. If we had failed too often, we wouldn't be here. And if we do some point in the future, we won't be here. And, and we understand that because there are, the stakes are high and, um, and the, the risks are high. And it's enormous capital utilization. This is a, this is a very um, capital intensive uh, business. And it's a risky business because you ultimately, you can have all the elements can be perfect and, and, um, and still have a, a, you know, creative disappointment. So you start with um, the best people you possibly can find, and we have, I believe, the best team in the business across every area of the company, every discipline, from the development and creative and production people to the marketing people and distribution people and technology people. And, you know, we're very, very proud of the, of the team we've assembled. And many of us, I think one of the other great characteristics we have here is, is um, longevity. I mean, uh, I've been here almost 20 years now. Tom's just a few years fewer, and most of the people when we have our our um, our senior staff meeting on Fridays tomorrow morning, actually, um, around the table are the are the heads of all the various divisions. And when you look around that room, those most of those people have been here. I would say the average uh, tenure is eight to ten years. Um, not always in that position, of course, having worked their way up through the food chain like the rest of us. But, but um, so there's that. And I think going back to this culture of, of news corporation, you know, we work for for one of the great visionaries, uh, uh, you know, Mr. Murdoch, and and um, and uh, he's a taskmaster, but he understands that being bold and being innovative and taking risks are are a part of any great achievement. As I was saying earlier, you know, one of our guiding mantras is that if you take a risk all of the time or none of the time, you fail. And so the management of the risk of the creative process and the investment in films is very much at the core of what we do. Um, I couldn't do that. Tom couldn't do that. None of us could do that, but James Cameron can do that. And the question is, you know, do you do you take that journey with him and put those resources and just as you do with every filmmaker? So um, it is a process of, of nurturing and developing people and giving them the confidence uh, both to advocate movies. I mean, you have to realize that 
probably 10,000 submissions of various forms come into the studio every year. Of those, we develop actively, pursue and develop probably 250, 300 projects at any one time. And we have one of the, the lowest um, ratios of development to, uh, to actual production um, in, in the industry, but we're all in pretty much clustered around the same 10 to 15 development projects for every movie you make. So um, choosing from, you know, distilling down from those 10,000 to those 250 or 300 to the 20 that you actually make is an arduous and difficult project and, and process and it's a very subjective process. So you need people to advocate their film to have the passion for it, not just the filmmaker, but the executives here, the creative executives, the marketing executives, to ultimately say, you know, we're crazy not to make this. Um, and to have the confidence to be able to say that and to have the confidence that they can be wrong. Not too often, but they can be wrong. Um, because if they don't have the, the ability to be wrong, they'll never be right. So, you know, and that's where that notion of, you know, if you never take risk, you just make the same boring movies over and over again. The audience figures that out. So it's, it's, it's nurturing talent. It's providing an environment that, that's, um, that's, you know, goal and task driven, but that also uh, conveys the understanding that we won't be right all the time and that that's okay because um, otherwise it would never, never happen. I want to engage the audience in this. We have microphones on both uh, aisles, so if you have questions, come to the microphone on the side and uh, we would love to take some of your questions, let you pick his brain about Avatar or anything else that you would like to ask about. Um, I did notice when I was watching that movie, I did get sucked into it because of my uh, motion sickness and my sphere of heights began to kick in fairly quickly. Yeah. <laughs> I may have to sit at the back of the theater when dynamic. I watch it in the theater. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, we have a question over here. Yes, uh, I have a question. Do you think that uh, this is going to be set up uh, uh, standard for uh, 3D for other movies to follow? Yeah, I... I um, you know, a lot has been, that's, that, that comment and that, that insight um, has, been, has been mentioned in the context of Avatar many times, and we've actually downplayed it because it speaks for itself. People will realize it. You know, there's a certain, there's not a great advantage when you're marketing a movie to saying it's the greatest thing in the history of film. And in fact, um, um, you know, it will clearly is breaking through new ground. Um, but there will be other filmmakers that will follow and use the technology, and, and Jim has had a procession of the, the, the best and the brightest of filmmakers come to um, uh, the uh, production facility where this was made. Um, so yeah, I think it does, I think clearly it sets a new standard for 3D. Um, one of the things that it's done is it has dramatically advanced the infrastructure of 3D cinema, which is, a, for another reason, a tremendous advantage to us as an industry um, because it's a distinguishing characteristic, a distinguishing media from the home experience. And just before Thanksgiving, I, I saw a 50-inch flat panel screen television set that I had bought a few years ago for a couple few thousand dollars. 
and it was selling for $680, 50-inch home screen. So that's, to me, that's great news because it expands people's ability to enjoy entertainment in a, in a really striking way. And at the same time, it, it requires that both the, what you put on that screen, whether it's in video or in video on demand or ultimately on, on you know, broad, even broadcast te television in high definition, obviously, but that, that that be compelling programming, but also that the experience in a theater be distinctive and that there's a reason why you come to a theater like this and you sit and you see a screen of that size and you're completely transported away. So um, that also translates into economics. You know, the 3D screens of, the, of films that have already been done um, generate two and a half to three times the revenue, the box office, that 2D screens do. One of the reasons for that is it's a more compelling experience, so more people will go to the 3D than the 2D screen. But not that the 2D's not enjoyable, but the 3D's an enhanced experience. And there's a premium. There's a $3 roughly average around the world now is pretty much the standard incremental cost of a 3D ticket to a 2D ticket. Well, obviously, that's desirable for the pure financial benefit of it. And what's happened with Avatar um, is that uh, it's, it's, it has exploded the, um, it's really overcome any remaining reluctance. And then from reluctance, it turned into a, a rush to convert as many 3D screens as possible. So it plays out on a number of levels, setting a new standard for filmmakers to now to aspire to, for audiences, of course, to expect, which is you know, a challenge for us, but also to expand the infrastructure of what is a new form of entertainment you know, for the future. I think that's Craig. Yes. Yeah. Hi, Jim. Thank you for that uh, profound gift. Uh, <laughs> I would have been happy with three minutes, and 30 minutes is amazing. Um, uh, you talked about confidence, and uh, the confidence you displayed in putting that before us at a time when, uh, you know, you've, you've been burned in the past with the early Wolverine things and that type of thing. How do you continue to walk in... Um, in confidence at, at a time when so much of the industry is, is completely driven by fear, to take even an even bigger risk at a time when people are becoming more fearful. Talk to me about that kind well, of leadership. You, you really, you know. I think we need you, to turn your, your, your oh, mic. Did I Lift do it that? up the other way. Yeah. There we go. Um, that might work better. You can't, you can't manage in fear, you can't lead in fear, you can't leave, uh, you know, live in fear. Um, uh, that becomes hopeless and paralyzing. Um, the, the incident that you're referring to with Wolverine was, was you know, a, a very, very unique, very tragic, but very unique, but also a good, a good lesson in the continuing battle to protect and, and, um, and uh, retain custody over, over creative materials, especially at this phase. Um, but there's nothing but, but pride and confidence in showing something like that. In addition, one of the things that's a great advantage of 3D is it takes a lot more work to copy that image off the screen <laughs> than, you know, than it does a 2D image, which is, uh, which is another great advantage. Take another question over here. Uh, hello, Jim. My name is Shaheen Orion. Uh, I've been working with the company for about four months now and uh, had a great opportunity to work with a lot of great people in television distribution. Um, one of the things I've been wondering about is uh, in terms of 
life experiences, uh, there's a balance of uh, success and failures. And a lot of people tend to learn more from the failures, the setbacks, than they do from the successes. Uh, so I'm just kind of curious, what do you think has been one of the most significant uh, setbacks that you've experienced professionally, and what did you take away from it? Well, um, at one point, uh, I thought I had, it was very early after we became chairman of the studio, um, I had a project which was a, I thought I had the, achieved the coup of a lifetime. It was Steven Soderbergh who was coming off of having made Traffic, Aaron Brockovich, I was about to make Ocean's 13, I think, at the time, and uh, had been nominated the same year for two Academy Awards for Traffic and Aaron Brockovich. Fantastic filmmaker. A classic book of science fiction called Solaris, which is a story about a guy who, again, similar somewhat to this, um, a space station, no one's heard from them, guy is sent up there, an astronaut, he arrives at the space station, he finds everyone has been somehow demented or, or has had some psychological trauma. He lies down in his bed to, to rest, the first arrival there, and his wife um, enters the bed with him and, and, and then they make love. The only problem is his wife has been dead for eight years. So there's this, this we, we learn that this planet has the ability to put into your consciousness the things you fear the most. So that leads to all kinds of wonderful things. And it was produced by James Cameron. And Steven Soderbergh wanted to take it and have it financed separately. And I talked him out of that and got Jim to be involved. And Jim was always involved, but, but um, be enthusiastic about it. Um, and uh, we were about to start moving forward. And, and Steven Soderbergh um, called and said, oh, by the way, um, I think I have some good news for you. Uh, George Clooney wants to play the lead. So it was, I am the smartest, greatest executive <laughs> in the history of the motion picture business. The movie was a total, I mean, it was a beautiful, brilliant, metaphysical, s surrealist, um, um, intellectual exercise that nobody saw. Did anybody here see it? Oh, see, no, no, there a, were well, this is an intelligent crowd. We but right. It wasn't. No, but seriously, it's, a, it's the kind of movie people, like in this room, would enjoy. It was well, it was well reviewed, not by everyone, but by many, and it was a really intelligent, moving story. But it was certainly not what people were expecting from a George Clooney movie, and, you know, if we had made it for a fraction of the price, it would have been a great thing. But it was a, it was a humbling lesson in the fact that. You know, um, you need to really be in sync with the vision of the filmmaker and that you can never take for granted um, even the best elements. Um, you can never be absolutely certain of the end result. And, um, and so that was a, you know, it was a humbling experience. And, and you, you can take from that experience, again, a paralytic fear of, you know, nothing's ever going to work or you can recognize that you're still alive after having, you know, done that. And, um, and that's what's really important. So but that was a tough one. Great. Um, Let's go over here, yes. Hi, uh, my name is Dimitri Sava, I'm from Cyprus, and I'm a film production student at Chapman University. 
And uh, I would just want to ask a brief question uh, uh, in respect of financial uh, aspect of the uh, avatar. What do you think will uh, will achieve internationally? Because as everybody knows that in, in the States, it's going to be a, a huge success uh, because the, the, the target is it's uh, uh, children and uh, teenagers that will obviously go and see that. What do you think internationally will? I think it'll be bigger internationally, probably uh, uh, maybe subs very substantially bigger. I mean, I came up through the international side of the business, and, I, and um, one of the things that you know, you realize, is that first, in reality, there are teenagers all over the world, yeah, you know, true. and there are film lovers all over the world, and in particular, Hollywood is unique in its ability to put a spectacle like that in front of an audience. So, you know, they, we have the great films made in France and in Germany and in and in Greece and Cyprus and, and China, but no one can really achieve this level of scale and um, I want to say quality, but, but to put that much up on the screen with a filmmaker like, like uh, Jim Cameron. So it is a unique event and um, you know, the fact that people, what I always say is that you know, when, when the international side of the business equal the US. All the guys on the international side, well that's great, you know, we're on par. And I said, well, here's what I don't get. There are 300 something million people in the US and there are six billion people out there. So it's a 20 to one ratio. Mm -hmm. Why are we such slackers? You know, <laughs> there are a lot of people out there. So I expect it will be substantially bigger. Thank you. We'll go back over here. Uh, thanks. Um, my name is Tim Devine. I run an internet television network called Webcaster. And I have a question that I think a lot of people might be interested in. Without giving away any kind of you know, inside secrets or anything, can you kind of generally tell us how the deal structure works? I know this is an exceptional project that probably has a lot of unusual circumstances. But in terms of you know, when they bring it to you, how much work have they done in advance and invested themselves in terms of script development or, or story development, uh, at what point do you step in, how much will you commit up front, are there benchmarks for achieving additional uh, financing steps, and then on the back end, how far do you go with ancillary rights, obviously there's going to be video games and theme park rides and all p other kind of potentials here, sequels or whatever. Just how, what are the basic parameters of a, of a structure that's for a, a deal that's like a, this? That's a very extensive and, and complicated question, I think, but... Um, I'll give you about two minutes to answer it, yeah. In terms of how far along it is, um, there are times, you know, the, the film Day After Tomorrow was a, was a film that Roland Emmerich and we, we were able to kind of get everybody else out of the way and grab that property. Um, that was a property that went on auction, literally, uh, in the town and um, uh, was, uh, was made available at the uh, CAA office at first thing in the morning one day, and it was, what's your best bid at 5 o'clock today? And it was fully baked. The script was written. The, the images and the visualization of the film were not just in the director's mind, and, um, 
but also laid out in some material that was available. And it was, it was an on-off switch. Give me the money, go make the movie. Um, by contrast, Castaway was a movie that had been conceived initially, actually, by, by Tom Hanks, and, and, and a collaborator, and, and gestated in various forms for about a decade. Um, championed by um, uh, the president of, of one of our two main production division, Elizabeth Gabler, who retained the passion for the project and the interest of Tom Hanks over a 10-year period while this very difficult, everything looks great when you look at it now, but you know the idea of a guy being on an island for 40 minutes and not saying a word because there was no one to talk to <laughs> is a pretty daunting thing. But so it's that, that's truly the range. And um, in, the, in the case of econ the economics, it also varies greatly, but I think one of the things that we have um, been very concerned about and I think has finally started to, with, partly because of the economic crisis and the, the withdrawal of some of the loose money that was around, I guess you guys know a lot about that and how much capital was flowing into all kinds of businesses without the real uh, adequate or you know, sufficient scrutiny. But what's happened is the, um, the relationship of risk and benefit with talent has shifted so that you don't have these, these deal scenarios where by the time the studio has recovered its money, the talent has made 50 or 60 or 80 million dollars. Um, that has changed. It's still, you know, the best and, and, and most desirable talent is still very, very amply compensated and, and you know, um, the marketplace defines that. But I think there is an increasing scrutiny and an understanding that there needs to be some balance of, of risk and reward. I'm going to take one more question, given the time, and I'm sorry because we've got so many people that are standing and wanting to ask questions. But I'm going to go over here and let you ask the last question, and then we'll need to wrap up for this evening. Thanks, Dean Lemonstone. Uh, Mr. Giannopoulos, um, I'm George Granados. I'm a Pepperdine MBA student. I've actually been with Fox now interning since May, first in uh, domestic home entertainment, retail marketing. Now I'm in new release uh, brand marketing. And I have a question for you. Um, I'm doing a project for uh, my department, and I noticed that the last two years, Q4 uh, theme has been Blu-ray adoption. Um, next year, I think that the base will be there. Um, and one thing that I noticed in one of my store checks is uh, 3D TV that's set to debut next year. I know that um, Disney didn't uh, feel that the technology was there to release up on 3D uh, Blu-ray, but um, what is your opinion oh, it, in, in a year from now? Uh, will there be an Avatar uh, Blu-ray in 3D for Q4 2010? Um, it's not that the technology, I mean, everything you said is correct, the, 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 but with one slight um, variant, and that is that for Disney and Up, and even for us with Avatar, it's not that the technology is, isn't there. I mean, I've seen 3D Blu-ray. It's just that, you know, it's the only one in existence, <laughs> essentially a <laughs> prototype. So the technology is there, but as you said, um, they're only beginning to sell. In fact, they haven't, they haven't I don't think they've fully clarified which of several um, alternative 3D formats 
um, will be the standard for that, but it looks like that's getting worked out. So the point being that there is no established base of 3D televisions and no established base of 3D Blu-ray. So it doesn't really make sense to take a movie like this and put it out there with 100,000 televisions right. installed in the home. So I think what we'll probably do, we haven't decided yet, but it's most likely that we'll do a, a, a 2D or, or some um, initial form of 3D. We haven't decided. Uh, but really wait until the base is there and then do it right. Because as you can see, it deserves it. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, Jim, thank you so well, much. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you all for you coming. Appreciate, appreciate your time. I wish we could continue this discussion. It's such a rich conversation and uh, so many interesting things we could be asking Jim about. But thank you so much for being here. Uh, I did interview Jim earlier. It will be on uh, a podcast on iTunes University. We actually talked about some different kinds of issues than you heard tonight. So if you want to hear more from Jim, you can listen to that. It will be up shortly. And then certainly this will be uh, on video. You can access through our website or on YouTube as well, as well as the other uh, Dell's speakers that we've had. We had Carol Carolyn Nahas from Corn Ferry and Brian Moynihan from Bank of America earlier. And so you can certainly see those if you were not able to be with us. So thank you so much for being here. It was a wonderful evening. Uh, we look forward to seeing you again in the spring when we start these up again. Have a safe trip home. <laughs>